Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Good morning, everybody. Today I will be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and verses 14 through 22. The angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. I have entitled today's sermon... Revelation, Christ's message to the, the churches, because 
what I believe that we read in Revelations chapters two and three is, is not, not so much seven different messages to these first century believers, but rather one singular message with uh, maybe a different flavor or uh, a little different form in each of the seven settings. And because seven is the number of sacred uh, completion or, or, or fullness, then the message that Christ gave to these local churches in John's day is a message for the entire church, including us today. And as Christ says at the end of each of these seven exhortations, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, th this phrase, which is often used by Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and others, it, it, it always implies a, a call to obedience. Now, as I said in my introductory messages, I believe we read Revelation well when we understand that the entire book was intended for these seven churches, not just chapters two and three. So the whole book, the, it's, it's one letter, and it made sense. The whole thing made sense to their first century ears. So that the lengthy vision that starts in chapter four, and goes right till chapter 22, it, it, it expounds upon and reinforces the exhortations found in chapters two and three. So the blessings of the new Jerusalem, they are promised to those who, as we read in all seven parts of the message, it's, it's those who conquer, those who overcome in their own situation. And so the call to conquer for these churches, it's a call to engage in a battle, in a, in a spiritual battle that's and it's described throughout the central chapters of the book. And the goal is that in order that you can reach the destiny that's described at the end of the book. Now, before considering what their situation looked like and the nature of the battle that they, they faced, I, I think it's wise to, to downplay a, an understanding of the churches that's been popular within evangelical circles in the past. Now, some suggest that the seven churches here in Revelation that they prophetically depicted uh, seven eras of church history from the apostolic age up until our day. So this is kind of what it looks like in a nutshell. So you got Ephesus listed first in this theory. It represents the state of the whole church during its early days, while the, the church in Smyrna represents the persecuted church up until the time Constantine made Christianity the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire, and then so on throughout different periods of history. Now, following this theory, we, of course, then would find ourselves in the last stage, the lukewarm Laodicean age. <laughs> and as, as fascinating as this theory, this, this theory might seem, it, I think it's a stretch to characterize all Christians as being alike in any particular period of church history. Certainly not every Christian today exhibits the properties of the church in Laodicea. I, I suppose you most likely don't think of yourself as one that Christ wants to spew out of his mouth because of your, your lukewarm and your pathetic uh, Christian walk. So my warning is if you like this theory, it's, it's fine, but I would just say don't let it distract you from the main point of the book, namely discipleship 
and at a call to, to bear faithful, obedient, and truthful witness to Jesus Christ. So, what then did that call look like for these churches, and what are the challenges that they faced? See, these assemblies, they were not your little country church on the edge of town that Chuck Gerard used to sing about back in the 1970s. These were churches in big cities with all the temptations and trappings of big city life. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, It had a um, population of about a quarter million people. It had an impressive theater that seated 24,000 people, and it was also the home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Smyrna was a a beautiful, well-paved port city that housed over 100,000 people, and it was renowned for its advances in science and medicine. Pergamum was the, uh, the provincial capital of Asia and a major cultural center with a 200,000 volume library that rivaled the famous library of Alexandria back in the day. Thyatira was a substantial commercial hub with many trade guilds while the church in Laodicea lived in the wealthiest city in the area. And uh, Laodicea was a city that was famous for its uh, significant textile industry, famous for expensive black wool garments. So the churches listed in the book of Revelation, we need to know that they existed within the complex and the nuanced life of big, thriving cities. And living during the peak of the Roman imperial power, loyalty issues dominated everyday life. All these cities were entirely under the throne, sorry, under the thumb of Roman power and influence. Several of them felt that deep debt of gratitude to Rome for rebuilding their cities after uh, devastating earthquakes in their past history. Now, as far as religious practice was concerned, uh, Rome gave a a pass to Judaism, but the exclusivity of Christianity, that, that was a problem for Caesar and for those under his jurisdiction. So not only were these cities decorated with numerous temples that were dedicated to uh, to Augustus Caesar in particular, and also to various gods and goddesses within the Greco-Roman catalog of deities, but all its citizens were expected to participate in the what was called the imperial cult, which basically just means that you had to revere and worship the big guy in Rome, Caesar, as a, as a demigod or even like a full deity. So emperors were keen on calling themselves uh, the son of God. That's the title they went by. And they often assumed the title of the ruler of the kings on earth. A phrase that Jesus used about himself back in Revelation chapter 1. Am I cutting in and out or is it just... No, okay, so it just sounds like to me. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so uh, besides having to, um, you know, be patriotic to all the uh, the local deities that you have in the city, you had to proclaim, it's kind of a regular thing, you had to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And failure to participate in this enforced adulation of Caesar and the local deities, it was considered, at best, it it was considered bad citizenship. And at worst, it was considered outright treason, punishable by death. So by swearing allegiance to Christ alone, Christians would be seen as un 
civil traders who didn't care about the welfare of their city. It was a dangerous time to be a Christian in first century Greco-Roman world. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord was to imply that Caesar was not. And it wasn't just Caesar who was vying for the devotion of these Christians. Zeus was also in the running. Those living in Pergamum, if you look in your text in 2 verse 13, it says those living in Pergamum were said to dwell amidst Satan's throne. And that's probably a reference to the big Acropolis or the big rock in the middle of the city that, that, that housed a towering temple to the imperial cult as well as it contained a tremendous altar to Zeus. And on this altar was written the words, Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus will be. <laughs> Sound familiar? Besides the matter of idolatrous confessions of loyalty, moral issues were always at play. The sexual immorality associated with Greco-Roman temples, it, it is well known by historians. T temples often employed numerous sacred prostitutes to carry out their debauched practices of their false religions. So these were but some of the challenges to faithful discipleship for these Christians living in first century Asia. But economic pressure was also part of the story. Almost anyone involved in business had to be a member of uh, one of the trade guilds. Now, Thyatira in particular, historians say that it had trade guilds for every single profession. And if you tried to operate independently outside the trade guild, it'd be like economic suicide because you would be completely denied access to the marketplace. But, but participation in the trade guilds inevitably included a religious dimension with its feasts. And, um, well, I say, oh yeah, feasts and ceremonies that, that, that included all kinds of pagan rituals and worship of local deities. It, it, put it simply, you, you couldn't just, you couldn't be a normal citizen of the city. Like, to just, if you somehow thought, well, I'm just going to be a regular guy, just, you know, if you want to function normally in the, the city, you, you couldn't help but engage in idolatry or witnessing or maybe even participating in acts of sexual immorality. The more that we are aware of the cultural and historical climate of their world, the more clearly we see that the challenges they faced, they, they were great in overcoming evil, in conquering the influence of the beast in their lives in order to be faithful to Jesus. And to increase the impact of the message, John's record of his vision includes uh, many local cultural references to either uh, physical characteristics or unique historical stories uh, that are unique to, to each of the cities. And as they would have read the book or, or the letter or heard it, it would be like, whoa, it would really catch the reader's attention. For example, a primary symbol within the culture of the city of Ephesus was a sacred tree that was associated with the cult of Artemis. So this tree image, it appeared regularly on their coins, making it a very familiar civic symbol. And so it's, it's no coincidence that in the conclusion of their part of the message to the, to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And so as they were reminded of this tree from the Garden of Eden and all its implications, 
their attention would have been piqued as they could not help but think of the sacred tree within their own cultural context. In the message to the church at Smyrna, Jesus referred to himself as the one who died and came back to life. That's in uh, 2 verse 8. Now using this title for them was, was most likely driven by Smyrna's unique history. You see, the ancient city of Smyrna, it had been destroyed by a people called the Lydians uh, way back in the day, causing the inhabitants to live in small surrounding villages for about 400 years. And then the city finally was reestablished, rebuilt about 290 BC, but then later it had to be rebuilt again because it got destroyed by a massive earthquake. So Smyrna gained the local reputation of being like uh, the mythical phoenix that rose from the ashes back to life. And so Jesus' title, the one who died and came back to life, it would have really resonated with them as they heard that. As well, the crown language that Jesus uses with Smyrna would have triggered their imaginations. You see, Smyrna was built on Mount Pegasus, and so you'd have these beautiful buildings that sat on this rounded top and on the sides of this mountain, and it kind of gave the appearance of a crowned head, which led to the very common local expression in the day of the crown of Smyrna. And so by saying in 2 verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, this Jesus creates what we call a rhetorical hotspot for this particular church that certainly helped the promise reverberate with greater strength. So these cultural references, in, in, they, they permeate all of chapters 2 and 3. Uh, but let me just give you one last example from the, from the last church on the list, Laodicea. Now, you know, if you did your reading, you, or maybe you just know this, Jesus had nothing good whatsoever to say about the church in Laodicea. Uh, they were financially wealthy, but they were spiritually destitute. And so our Lord summed them up with one word, lukewarm. Now, when they heard the word lukewarm, oof, that would arouse their emotions because that is the type of water that the Laodiceans were forced to drink every summer when the Lycus River would dry up annually. Putrid, lukewarm water. So, possessing no springs of their own, Laodicea, they built an aqueduct and it brought the water from about uh, some springs that were five miles to the south of the city. So, by the time it got there, in the summertime, it, it, was, it, was, it was putrid. So, uh, disgusting. Uh, unlike the pure cold water that was enjoyed by the city of Colossae, 10 miles to the east, and unlike the um, renowned healing hot springs of Hierapolis, which was six miles to the north, Laodicea was, was basically just kind of left with this useless, lukewarm water. So in Jesus' analogy, it's not so much, oh, I'm hot, I'm really on fire for God, or I'm cold, you know, I've you know, slipped away. It's like, no, he's saying hot and cold water have good uses. You know, cold water, good to drink. These hot water, good for healing. But lukewarm water, it's, it's just useless. It's good for nothing but spitting out of your mouth. So again, the, these messages were full of numerous insider references that would have really heightened their impact upon delivery. And so with this background in tow, let, let's proceed to examine these pastoral messages themselves. All seven messages, they follow a similar structural uh, pattern. They, they each begin with a greeting. They, it's a greeting to the church, 
from Christ, and then Christ is described by using phrases from, that were already used back in Revelation chapter 1. For instance, to the church uh, at uh, Pergamum, Christ is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And that's a phrase from 1 verse 16. Or to the church at Thyatira, Christ is referred to as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, which is a phrase from 1 verse 14. So after these greetings then come a a commendation. For all but Laodicea, Christ gives an encouraging pat on the back for where these churches are doing well. For example, he praises the church in Ephesus for their patient endurance amidst persecution, as well as their ability to confront false teaching in their midst. To the church in Thyatira, Christ describes their works of love, faith and service and patient endurance as being on an upward trajectory. They're, they're, they're doing better. They're getting better and better. And for the Philadelphia church, he commends them for keeping his word and not denying his name. But then most of these commendations are followed by a word of correction. All but Smyrna and Philadelphia are confronted with a problem in their midst. For the Ephesians, it's that they've lost their first love, 2 verse 4. For the church in Sardis, they are described as spiritually dead, even though they have a reputation for being alive. To the church in Laodicea, contrary to their own belief that they're doing very well, that they're rich and in need of nothing, Christ uh, declares that they are instead, as we heard read this morning, wretched, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. Then after the criticisms come uh, exhortations and a calls or calls to repentance. To the church in Smyrna, Christ urges them to not fear. He says, you got some persecution coming your way, but don't, don't be afraid, just hang in there. Uh, to, the, to the church in Pergamum, Christ threatens actually to take some action against them himself if they don't repent of some bad behavior that is a result of some false teaching in their midst. To the church at Sardis, he simply tells them to wake up. And to the church in Laodicea, he calls for zealous repentance. And he says, you guys got to turn to me. You got to turn to Christ to get all the things you didn't think you need, but you really do need them. He says, you, you need my gold to make you rich. You need my white garments to clothe your nakedness. You need my eye salve to, uh, to cure your blindness and so forth. And finally, after the exhortation, Christ offers a series of next life promises to those who overcome the evil influences in their life, those who stay faithful in their allegiance to Jesus. Now, when you read each of these seven messages and you hear the the promises kind of at the end of each of them, you'll see that they've got all sorts of Old Testament illusions, like um, eating from the tree of life. He talks to the Ephesians. Or, or to Thyatira, he says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. You know, that's a, that's a phrase straight out of Psalm 2. So besides the Old Testament basis for these future promises, most of these uh, references, they're, they relate exactly to the description of the New Jerusalem in the last three chapters of the book. So it's those in Smyrna are promised the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And that second death is talked about in Revelation 20. 
Those in Sardis are promised, the one who conquers, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And the book of life, of course, is talked about in, in Revelation 21. And uh, to the overcomers in Philadelphia, Christ promises, the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And of course, that whole description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is outlined there in great detail. So we got greetings, commendations, corrections, challenges, and then comforting future promises for victorious believers. So such is the basic structural pattern for each of the seven pastoral messages. But having said all that, what's, what's the big picture paradigm? Like if we're going to look at this thing as like one big whole thing as we're trying to do this morning, what's the big picture paradigm of these messages? What is Jesus really saying to these churches? He's talking about overcoming each time, conquering, overcoming. What, <coughs> what does it mean to overcome? And as well, what, what, what does it mean for us? We've got to ask ourselves, like, what challenge does this message bring to our hearts as followers of Jesus today? Well, I'd say there's several pieces to this big picture paradigm. One of them, one of them is our deeds. Now, clearly we are saved by faith, not by works, but our deeds are important to God. The word deeds, it's, it's used 16 times throughout the book and largely by Jesus. And as James affirms in his epistle, true faith always results in good deeds. Now, not to diminish in any way the the, the completed, the finished work of Christ on the cross. But the book of Revelation, it makes a strong call, a strong repeated call for patient endurance. And anytime you find that phrase, you, you see it's always connected in Revelation with obedience. The Christian journey, you know, obviously doesn't end with a simple sinner's prayer. It may begin there, but as Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, it's, it's, it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. If we claim Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, our allegiance and our loyalty must be totally to Him. And that always, that always takes the form of obedience. As the angel in Revelation 14, 12 says, here's a call for endurance. If you don't know what it means to endure, he says basically, it's those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And so kingdom citizenship always demands obedience. But this little last phrase here, keeping their faith in Jesus. So always keeping our faith in Jesus, it's always in Revelation connected to or referred to as overcoming or conquering. Again, this phrase, this word, it's used, it's either translated as overcoming or conquering by different versions. It's the same Greek word. And it's used 17 times within the book. So I say, well, what, what does that actually mean to, to conquer, to overcome? Well, our first hint about what it means is found right near the end of chapter 3, when he's talking to the Laodicean church. Jesus says, the one who conquers, listen to this, I will grant him to sit on me with my throne as I also conquered 
That's Jesus talking. So he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So from 3 verse 21, we know one thing for sure about what it means, and that's our conquering should look a lot like Jesus conquering. So that means that this victory obviously doesn't come through killing, because Jesus didn't do any of that, but it comes rather through dying. As Jesus said, thus he modeled, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, Jesus overcame, he overcame sin and death by denying himself, by laying down his life, a sacrifice which resulted in him being exalted to the right hand of the Father. So our call to conquer must also involve laying down our lives in this battle against sin and evil. Well, what else? Well, probably the, the, the best uh, elaboration of the, of the term conquering comes in, in Revelation, probably I'd say in the middle of the book in that verse, Revelation 12, verse 11. And it says, and they have conquered him, that is Satan, if you read the context, it's Satan. They've, they've conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So overcoming evil and Satan's power in our lives, it involves three aspects. It involves the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus. It involves testimony, verbal testimony, not just they'll know we are Christians by our love. Like I just hope somebody notices that I'm a Christian because I'm a nice guy. No, it's like verbal testimony about Jesus. And thirdly, a willingness to die for him. Now, obviously the, the blood of the lamb is, you know, it's central to everything. In chapter 5, we will read that it's the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He, he overcomes in the role of being a slaughtered lamb. Christ shed blood washes away our sin and becomes the source of our eternal salvation and our sanctification. Apart from his blood, we can do nothing at all of eternal significance. And then our, our union with Christ, well, it, it allows us to do that, which is pleasing to the Lord. And part of the being pleasing to the Lord is being his faithful witnesses, giving testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving testimony to this message of the saving power of his blood, to, to you know, salvation. But also part of the message is the judgment that is coming for those who spurn, who, who turn away and reject God's grace. And as Jesus modeled, we must also be prepared to die for him. You know, die for the cause. For they, they loved not their lives, even unto death. Now you notice that, uh, maybe you knew this, but like the Greek word that we have in, you know, our Bible says witness, the actual Greek word is martyr. And, and that's, you know, how we kind of ended up getting concept in English, what a martyr is, because so often in the early days, in the early days of the church, you know, to, you witness for Jesus, uh, you ended up dead. Now, it's not that martyrdom is in any way being glorified. It's, it's just that faithful discipleship may demand it at some point. So we got dying to self and surrendering all that we are to the blood of Jesus, taking up the cross of Christ and bearing witness for him, being even willing to die for him. 
That is what it means to conquer the enemy, to overcome. Winning the battle by staying faithful and true. Just like our faithful and true witness. You notice in 3 verse 14, Jesus refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. So we, as members of the Messiah's army, we achieve victory in the same way that our, our military commander did it. He, he led the way and we follow. And it's, it's serious business because according to Revelation 21 verse 7, the promise is it's only those who conquer who will inherit God's eternal presence in his kingdom. So what's going on in these churches that, that causes Jesus to give these strong warnings to step up, repent, to overcome? Well, there appear to be two main issues at stake. We've got threat of persecution and the lure of evil. Uh, you know, for us today, we might think, one, not so much, but eh, maybe it's coming. Two, yeah, we can probably relate to that, the lure of evil. So, um, as I outlined earlier, it, it was really tough. It was really tough to be a Christian in their world. In, in Pergamum, one of their members had already been murdered. His name was Antipas, and it says he was killed in your midst. So Antipas, Jesus refers to as my faithful witness. In Smyrna, there seems to be some heavy persecution that's on the horizon. And Jesus tells them, don't fear about, about what you're to suffer. In, in Ephesus, as noted earlier, the problem was identified as losing their first love, which if, if you take time to kind of examine that more closely, it seems to be that uh, this is about losing their, their passion for being a witness for Jesus, for speaking out boldly for him. So perhaps their fear of persecution for the Ephesians had just kind of caused them to go into stealth mode. Another issue for Smyrna, as well as Philadelphia, was the oppression at the hands of the local Jewish community. There was, most likely, it's like the traditional Jews who were targeting the new Jewish Christian converts, new Jewish believers, with, with slander and other means of oppression. And these suffering saints undoubtedly desire to join with the chorus of souls that break forth in Revelation 5, 9. I don't know if you remember that part in Revelation where it's the fifth seal is broken and these, soul, these souls underneath the altar say, like a, it's like a psalm, How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood upon the earth? You deal with these people who have killed us. But, but in the face of these trials, Jesus just calls them, just hang in there. Just persevere, endure. But besides the, the tangible threat that we have here for of persecution, the greater assault on these congregations was the lure of evil. Now, they've got three specific threats that are identified as we read through these chapters. And it's, it's these things. It's called the works and teachings of the Nicolaitans. We see that in the, the message to Ephesus and Pergamum. We've got the, the teaching of Balaam in Pergamum. And we've got some ideas that are being promoted in Thyatira by a false prophetess who is referred to as Jezebel. Now, we can't discuss these in detail, but suffice to say that regardless of their distinctive labels, the text seems to indicate that they were all, they're all basically the same thing. They're all related somehow to practices of sexual immorality and idolatry involved in eating food, sacrifice to idols, and all these other things that went on in these, these ceremonies, these, these feasts, especially with the trade guilds, which was a big thing, the banquets that they would have and these things that were so prevalent in their culture. As I said, this, this culture pressure on, on these guys, it was, 
It was so great to draw them away from their faithful walk with Jesus. And it appears that their waywardness took the form of either compromise, complacency, or total capitulation. So for Pergamum and Thyatira, it's compromise. They're, they're demonstrating evidence of you know, healthy Christian faith, while at the same time, they seem to be dabbling in the perverted mores of the Greco-Roman culture. They're compromising. They're trying to walk both sides of the fence at the same time. For Ephesus and Sardis, it's a matter of complacency. It's just kind of meh, <laughs> you know? The Ephesians, they'd grown cold, and they'd lost their verve for bearing witness to Jesus. And Christ's response to them was, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. And for Sardis, the self-deceptive complacency within their congregation had led them to a point of total spiritual deadness. Christ says in 3 verse 1, You have the reputation of being alive, he says, but, but you're dead. And then he shouts, Wake up! <laughs> And if you don't wake up, I'm going to come to you like a thief. And then for the Laodiceans, well, it's just a matter of total capitulation, total surrender. <laughs> you know, having lost the battle, utterly lost the battle to the enemy. They were so far from Christ. They were so detached from spirituality. They had this concept in their heads that, well, because we're really wealthy, we must be in good relationship with God. And Christ tells them, no, you've got to zealously repent. You've got to totally change your mind about your need of me. Without Christ, they are, in fact, as we read, deplorably wanting in every way. And yet, and yet, <laughs> within the harshest message, the Laodicean rebuke, we see the greatest display of God's grace and mercy. To this wayward church, Christ says in 3 verse 20, Behold, now, we often use this sort of like an invitation to non-Christians, but actually it's in the context of Christians who have fallen away, who have like were following and you know, they've gone. And he's saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Even the worst of the bunch, even the worst of the bunch, the Laodiceans, they are offered forgiveness a restored relationship with Jesus, a clean slate, a fresh start. So let me ask you this morning, is, is that what you need this morning? A, a fresh start? Have you been compromising in your Christian faith? Have you been trying to walk with, with Jesus and, and walk with the world at the same time? Have you become complacent? Not even caring that the beast has seized your heart and your habits. Or have you already capitulated? Have you already just totally given in, given up, surrendered? Well, the message is, whatever your state, Christ in his mercy calls you to repent. And if your walk, delightfully, your walk with Christ, if it's more solid... Like we read in the, uh, the Philippian believers, when you read that part of the message, if you are patiently enduring the cost of discipleship, if you're, if you're obediently keeping God's word, if you're refusing to deny the name of Jesus, as they were doing, then Christ says in 3 verse 11, he says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may steal your crown. 
for the stakes are high. God will one day judge Babylon, this evil world's system. Come out of her, Jesus says in 18 verse 4. Come out of Babylon, come out of her, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Make no mistake, God has already won the war against sin and death. That happened on the cross and in the tomb. But there's still a battle. There's still battles to be played out. God will win the final battle against this evil world at the end of the age. But we are also called to engage in this battle against evil within our own lives. And to those who win the battle, to those who conquer, overcome, those who conquer in the power of Christ's blood, those who overcome evil by laying down their lives for him, those who keep their allegiance to Jesus, those who faithfully obey the truth of his word through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, to those are given the promised blessings of the new Jerusalem. Life eternal with God in his glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the, the seriousness of the battle that we are in. It's so easy, Lord, for this world to deceive us, put us to sleep. Maybe the hardships in life, we start to get a chip on our shoulder about what we maybe thought we were promised. In following you, all, all, all this bad thinking as well as the, the evil influence of the world that can cause our minds to go soft and confused. Lord, this morning I pray that you would waken us, arouse us to the seriousness of the issue of the battle that is going on for our souls and the battle against evil that you have won. And as we rely on the power of your blood, as we let you live your life through us, we can be victorious, we can overcome and look forward to a glorious future in the new Jerusalem, a place where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain, no more sin and the ugliness and the, the filthiness and the destruction of evil. No more of that. And we thank you for this hope that is promised to us as we overcome in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.